What a wonderful song to sing as the nations rage, and a wonderful promise to have that He will hold me fast. And I think this morning we will, my prayer is this morning is that you will see why, is that you will see and understand this morning <coughs> why our Savior can and will hold us fast. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 33 will be our text this morning. We will come to part two of this little mini series in this chapter here, this promise of a Savior, if you will, tucked within these verses, these well-known verses of this, what is usually preached around Christmas, this this birth announcement of Jesus Christ, Gabriel comes, and within this, tucked within these verses, is a beautiful summary and description concerning four truths about Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we, the church, must embrace and must teach and preach and defend. We see the Savior's humanity. We see the Savior's work. We see the Savior's deity, and we see the Savior's reign. Now, last week we looked at the first two, <coughs> his humanity and his work. We saw that Jesus left heaven, that he takes on flesh. The Son of God is the Son of Man now. He, he's the Son of Man who, who's taken on flesh. He's one of us. And that he becomes <coughs> the, the sacrifice for our sins. In his humanity, he worked to bring about our salvation and redemption. It is the humanity of Christ that, that paved the way, that made it possible for him to become a sin sacrifice on our behalf, that he may seek and save those who are lost. And we saw that that was his work for coming. Today, you and I are going to flip the coin on the other side. We're going to look at the, the last two there, his deity and his rule or his reign which has been a highly debated argument um, over the centuries. Matter of fact, so much that after Emperor Constantine had, became, had, had converted over to Christianity, that he himself would call forth a council in the year 325 A.D. there. And he would call forth a council, and he would have all the bishops and all the people that would come, and there they would begin to discuss and to vote and on what, you know, on these controversies, because these controversies were beginning to cause a lot of problems within the local churches and things, and it was even beginning to cause a lot of problems even throughout the empire there. And so they sought to answer certain questions, and one of the main questions that they would seek was that Jesus was to ask, answer the question, was Jesus fully God or was Jesus fully man? And thankfully, the majority affirmed the very message that you and I will see this morning that Christ is both man and God, 100% fully God and fully man. If you will, let's look here at verses 26 as we see the message of Gabriel. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee and called Nazareth <coughs> to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. 
and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen and amen. Notice verse 32. Gabriel says that this baby, this Jesus Christ, will be great. Isn't it interesting that back in verse 15, he said the same thing about another individual? If you go back to chapter, if you go back to verse 15 in chapter 1, we read that he said this to Zechariah, talking about John the Baptist. He said, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And so we see that John's greatness was determined by what God saw, what God thinks. It was imputed to him by Christ, if you remember that sermon. And if you, if you were not here, you can go back and check that out on our website. But John's greatness is determined by what God thinks and according to Christ himself. And so it becomes very obvious here that this child is going to be great without qualification. This child is going to be great in essence. He will be great just because he is great. And so it is obvious that this child, Jesus Christ, will be greater than John. A truth that even John himself would say. For John would say, it is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie, untie. And so though Jesus' greatness here is without qualification... Brothers and sisters, it is not without description. We, we, we see here that the angel says he is going to be great. And then he begins to lay out two things here that we're going to see. Now, we saw two latter things last week, the humanity of Christ and the work of Christ. But now we begin to see this whole other side of the coin. And so let's begin this morning with the Savior's deity there in verse 1. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He shall call him named Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Notice that he uses that phrase, the Son of the Most High. Now this is one of God's names in the Old Testament. It is the, it is the name El Elyon, or Most High. For those of you who were with us in Sunday school, you may remember this. Genesis chapter 14, after Abraham's victory over the kings, Melchizedek comes out and he has this prayer of blessing on Abram. And he says, blessed Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek is describing God as possessing the highest possible status, the highest possible position and region that there is. It is a description of God's sovereignty, that God is higher than all other gods, that there is no one that is greater than he and no one who should be worshipped more than he or exalted above him. God is superior in every way. He is higher than anyone. He is more exalted. He is more powerful. He is, no one is wiser than him. No one can love like he loves. No one is as high as God most high. And to worship and to say anything else would be blasphemy. Yet Gabriel comes to Mary and he refers to Jesus as the son of the most high. Now, to refer to Jesus as the Son, God's Son, Gabriel is not saying that Jesus was created by God. This was, this was one of the things there, uh, you know, that they were trying to deal with, that God, that Jesus had been created. This, it does not, Jesus is not created. He is eternal. This, so it's not saying that he was created, nor is it to say that Jesus is God's Son in the sense of what you and I think of human relationships, son, father and son in scripture, in scripture, to refer to someone else as their son, it can also mean, and many times it would mean, that they are of the same essence. They bear the same essence. They, they bear the same DNA. They are of the same stuff. And so therefore they are equal, meaning that Jesus here 
as the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. He possesses the same stuff of God. He has the same attributes of God. And we see this throughout the Scriptures, that everything is consistent in this teaching and affirming this. Hebrews 1, verse 3, And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Colossians 1.15 tells us He is the, the same image. He is, a, he is an image of the invisible God. In John 14, 7, Jesus says that if you know me, you know the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Beloved, Gabriel is announcing to Mary here in this message, in this divine birth announcement, <coughs> that this Savior will manifest the glory of God. Why? Because this child is God himself. He is divine. He will be a man, but he will also possess deity he will possess the very attributes of God most high. And we see this, do we not? You'll see this throughout the Gospel of Luke, but you see it in all of the Gospels, that the power of God is in Christ. That he has that power. Why? He calms the storm. He raises the, the dead. He heals the sick. The authority of God, for he commands the demons and the angels. And also, with his great authority, the authority of God, he forgives sin. He gives innocent to the, he, 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 he proclaims the guilty are innocent. The knowledge of God and that he knows the hearts of men, the purity and the holiness of God and that Christ has never sinned, never once broken the law of God. The love of God that he loved the unlovable and he made the ultimate sacrifice laying his own life down for those who were sinners and enemies of him in every way. In every attribute, Jesus is divine and equal to the Father. Beloved, you must see the glory of this. This is not just some baby. This is not just, some, this is not just a normal, regular baby. This is God of heaven taking on flesh. And in taking on flesh, he loses none of his divinity, none of his deity. Why is this so important? It's important because therefore it tells us that Christ is our highest hope. There is no hope that is greater than Christ. Matter of fact, according to question 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Jesus had to be divine. He had to be God so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore us righteousness and life. Did you hear that? He had to be God because he had to bear the wrath of God. He had to bear the judgment of God. He had to bear the punishment of God. You and I cannot withstand that. You and I cannot, cannot stand under the weight of that. This amazing video this week that I saw on, on social media it was a really interesting thing, something I would never do, but it was, a, it was a mountain climber, ice climber, and he's climbing up, and then all of a sudden there's like this great avalanche of snow. And there in the video, he actually gave a description of, of, of how hard it was. But you can see he's holding on. The, the little things are, that he has, these climbing utensils, are in the ice. And he is holding on as, as the snow is rushing over his head. And it's pouring on top of him. And it's just going on. And he's hanging there. And he's having to bear the weight of this, not letting go. And I just looked at him and said, I'm dead. It's over with, dead. I, I'm coming home, Jesus. Because I am not strong enough to bear the weight of that. 
Brothers and sisters, you are not strong enough to bear the weight of the wrath of God. Who, O oh Lord, can bear your wrath? And God says, I can. And so he sends us Christ, God, in the flesh. He had to be man. He had to be able to take on the sins of the world to be our sacrifice. But a man could never stand up and bear the weight of that. And so the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, takes on the Son of Man. And he loses none of his power, none of his sovereignty, none of his wisdom, none of his strength. Not losing one ounce of it. And he becomes the sacrifice, the greatest and the highest sacrifice, greatest and highest offerings of God to appease God's wrath. And that sacrifice alone is, is, can bring forgiveness of sins. But if that was not enough, the second part of this, brothers and sisters, is that we see in Romans 8, 11, that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to you, to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. It is not only by his power, brothers and sisters, that he bears the weight of our punishment. It is also by this very deity and divinity that Christ himself, his power, that he is raised from death to life. For no mortal man can raise himself. So not only is the divinity of Christ that which bears the punishment of my sin, but it is also the divinity of Christ that is able to raise from death to life. Christ defeats death. And therefore, that means that if he is my highest hope, not only for the forgiveness of my sins, but he is my highest and greatest hope, that I will too have victory over death. This power of Christ, it lives in me because Christ lives in me. It is Christ who bears my punishment, but it is Christ who will bring me forth from the grave. And so I say to you this morning, beloved, that if you are here this morning and you are feeling the weight of your sins and you are feeling the shame of your sin and the guilt of your sins, then know this, your highest hope is not of this world. It is not found in this world in material things, in people, and in money, and in works. Your highest and your greatest hope, that which can bear the punishment of your sins and bring forgiveness of your sins and raise you from the dead is found in the one who left heaven who came and lived the perfect life who died for you rose from the grave and now presently is alive and reigning and ruling on the right hand side of the father that is your highest hope and so paul says you must not set your eyes upon this world as your hope it is christ and it has always been Christ, and it will always be Christ. And so I would say to you this morning that if you are an unbeliever this morning, I would pray that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon you this morning and that you would come to know Christ. Stop looking for all these other things. Stop thinking that, you can, that you're the greatest hope, that, that I can overcome this in myself. You're not. Come and lay your sins at the altar. Come and repent this morning and confess that you are a sinner and trust and believe that Christ and Christ alone can save you. Well, brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that he came to seek to save the lost and that if you confess your sins and believe upon him, you shall be saved. Come this morning. But let me also say this to the Christian this morning. And so this is really, really important. Is that the divinity of Christ is of highest doctrinal importance. 
you and I live in a day and age, we live in a time where, where we're all about compromi- compromising with one another on so many different things. Brothers and sisters, this is one that we shall never compromise. The Jehovah's Witnesses have compromised. The Mormons, the, the, they, they are all in this. This doctrine has bred so many false religions to believe that, that Jesus was created by God. That he isn't God himself and that his, he has the attribute of, 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 eternal, of being eternal. The divinity of Christ is of the highest doctrinal importance for First Baptist Church. To not embrace this as true, lover, as, as true lowers Christ and removes all power from the gospel. And so therefore our evangelism will be useless and in vain. FBC, this is a hill to die on. This is a hill in which we will not move. Why? Because of the core value of biblical fidelity. We believe and we see that what Gabriel is saying here to Mary is a doctrine that is teached from Genesis to Revelation. And so we stand our ground on this doctrine because we see that it is consistently taught through the Scriptures and to do otherwise, to compromise in any other way, would be unchristian. And it would be to trade truth for a lie. So if you were a member of FBC this morning, you need to understand, and we're going to look at this tonight, that you and I have been given, we have duties in this world, in this church. One of our duties is to uphold the doctrines of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church members must believe this doctrine. This is not one of those things that you and I get to go, well, we can have some debate. No, this is a doctrine that you must believe. And to do and anything otherwise means that you, are, that you cannot be part of the church because it is an essential doctrine of the church. But I also say to you that it must be taught. This is a doctrine that must be taught, and it is a doctrine that must be defended and protected at all cost. Brothers and sisters, this is the responsibility of every church member. Christ bore the weight of our punishment. And so therefore in this world, because he took our punishment, because he, he forgave us of our sins and bore that weight, we bear the weight and the responsibility of bringing glory and honor to Christ by not moving one centimeter from the deity of Christ. He is God. He is God. He is God. But secondly, I want you to see also the Savior's reign this morning. Notice notice that the angel's description continues on. He says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You see, the angel's description here refers to his kingship. So not only is he God, he is also a king. And so this promised Savior is promised to be a king. But notice this, a king with a kingdom that will never end. And it's to be an eternal kingdom. For Gabriel says that his kingdom will have no end. Now, immediately we go, well, that just doesn't seem right. Because you and I are, I mean, we are already right now seeing that kingdoms can come to an end, right? We're seeing things over in the world. Uh, you know, people have said, I thought we were past this days of people invading other countries and things. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Nothing is certain in this world. No nation, no kingdom, no president, no nothing is certain in this world. Why? Because it's all temporary. None of us are eternal. And so what we see is, is that there is no true kingdom of this. There's no kingdom in this world that can actually say that its kingdom will not fall at some point. History has shown us that. But here Gabriel delivers this message in a promise. He says, this king will have a kingdom and it will never end. 
How is this? How can a human king rule forever? Well, because of the two natures of Christ. He is human. He is man that he's taken on flesh, but he is God. He is divine. And so he is not an ordinary king. And if he is not an ordinary king, then his kingdom is not going to be an ordinary kingdom. He is a king that, is the, that possesses the title of son of man, but son of God. He is the king of kings. And so we get a little bit of description here. Notice that we see the throne of his father, David. Mary understood exactly what this meant. She, under, she knew that, that God had promised long ago that David's bloodline would be the ones to sit and to rule over Israel. God had promised that David's bloodline, would ha- that they and they alone would have the right to rule as king. And so it just so happens that Joseph and Mary are both from those bloodlines. You have Mary, the DNA, the blood of Mary. And then you have Joseph, who, who is of David, who, who adopts Jesus and gives him the, the legal, under the law, uh, right to rule. And so we see here that Jesus, whether you look at it from his mother's standpoint or his father's standpoint, that Jesus has the right to rule over Israel, to be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Yet, as we continue through the teachings of the Gospels, what we do find, though, is is that the borders of his kingdom will extend far wider than one could ever imagine. They will go far beyond that of Israel. The dual nature of Christ is going to widen the kingship. During Jesus' trial, where he stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilate will ask him, Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Because he didn't, no one needed to, to rival that of Caesar. No one needed to rival that of his king, Pont- Pilate's king, Caesar. Are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's really amazing. It's, you really don't understand. Caesar don't need to worry. My, I'm already ruling and reigning over Caesar. He don't even know it yet. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And what he means is is that my kingdom is not just going to be a physical kingdom, but it is a spiritual kingdom. Presently, right now, he is ruling and reigning in this world through the the supernatural work of the Spirit who lives within us. As he reigns over our hearts, as we the church are an expression of that king, of of his authority and his rule, of his kingdom in this world. And one day we know and we are told that he is one day going to come back. He is one day going to recreate this earth. He is one day, we are all going to be with him and see him on the throne. It is going to be a physical kingdom. And And if you thought it couldn't get better than that, he tells us that those who are of him... Those who have repented of their sins and, and, and believed upon him will also rule with him in this kingdom. Christ is presently ruling and reigning in the hearts of Christians. And if you are a believer this morning, you are part of this kingdom. And we wait one day for when the kingdom will come. As we saw, as we talked about this morning in my own class, in, in I believe Matthew 13 of the, the mustard seed. You don't see it, but it is in the ground and it's going to grow and blossom Here's the beauty of this kingdom of Christ. It has no end. It is eternal. And Christ proved Gabriel's words correctly here, didn't he? Not on this day. But 33 years later, when Christ would die on the cross and be placed into the tomb, on the third day he would rise. You say, why is that so important? It's important because if our king is alive, if our king is is eternal then so is the kingdom 
If our king cannot die, so is the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, Gabriel's promise to Mary is a promise to all of us. Jesus Christ is our king. And our kingdom will have no end. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore this is our highest allegiance in this world. This is our highest allegiance. And, and we in America, we, we're, we really do get influenced by the politics of this world. And we, and we really do, Christ, the Son of the Most High, we tend to lower our sights to this world and we begin, to, we begin to look at this world and we see that this is our highest hope and this is our highest allegiance. But if Christ is the Son of the Most High and He is a King of kings with a kingdom that will never end, then your highest allegiance in this world is to Him and Him alone and anything else is unchristian and sinful. If you commit your life to anything else, then you are living in the wrong kingdom. Your highest commitment in this life is not your spouse. The highest commitment in this life is not your children. The highest commitment in this life is not your family or your work or your hobbies or your pleasures. It is not your social concerns. It is not your politics. It is not your country. It is not the worldly affairs. Your highest allegiance in this world is to Christ. Why? Because he's God and he is king. And anything that would come that would tempt me to, to place my commitment to something else or to even, even to split and to say, well, I will share my allegiance with something else, brothers and sisters, is unchristian and sinful. Why? Why? In the words of Paul Washer, I think he answers this best. In one of his sermons, he said it this way. He says, because Jesus is worth more than all of these things put together, you take mountains and molehills, you take crickets and clowns, you take everything, you take every planet, every star, you take every form of beauty, you take everything that brings light or life into the world, and you put it all on one side of the scale. You take everything that you can and you put it on one side of the scale, you put it all there, and you take Jesus Christ and put it on the other, and he outweighs them all. He outweighs them all. And yet I'm afraid there are those here this morning who are far more committed to their pleasures and to their children and to their work and to their hobbies, to their country, to their politics. You're far more committed to yourself than you are to Christ. I think we've seen this over the last few years. That there are things in this world that would actually make me break away from my allegiance and my commitment to Jesus Christ. Whether it be politics or health, whatever it may be, we have learned and we have seen firsthand that we may not be as committed as we thought we were. And worst of all, brothers and sisters, we are raising a generation of children to put their allegiance into other things rather than Christ. We see this in the fact that church members are not committed to the consistent corporate worship and the corporate gatherings and the Bible studies and the prayer meetings because we have other obligations. There are other things that are more important 
than coming to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. There are other things more important than a Bible study. There are other things that are more important than the family worship in my home. I have job. I have these responsibilities and these responsibilities. But at the end of the day, whatever career you may have, whatever responsibilities you may have, it is secondary to your allegiance and to the responsibility that you have in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's king. He has always been king. And he will always be always be king if you want to know that if you want to examine yourself this morning on that all you have to do is ask yourself this question where does the lord's supper rank in my priorities because if the lord's supper is one of those things that i can miss and it's not that important and we don't have to do it very often if, if, if there are things that are more important to you than for you to take a piece of bread and a little bit of juice and to take that then brothers and sisters then you are not as committed to Jesus Christ as you think because this was a direct command of Christ and for many of us we can do without it we can do without it brothers and sisters if your allegiance to Christ it's not as committed as you thought. I would call upon you to repent. Call out to him this morning that he would give you a love and a passion for him like you have never had. But I would also want to add one other thing to this this morning. That in light of recent events, in light of what we are seeing in the world as the nations rage, we need not fear that because our kingdom is eternal, that you can have the highest peace of life. You can have the highest peace of life because right now we are watching the nation's rage. And let's be honest, we've watched the nation's rage for two years now, if not more. Whether it be Australia and their COVID camps and whether it be Canada locking pastors up and shutting down churches, whether it be China and all the things that are going there, whatever it may be, for two years we have watched the nations rage and now we see the Afghanistan stuff and we see the Ukraine stuff and we see all of this and many of us are sitting back and we just go, the world just seems so unstable. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, what is the world going to look like in six months to six years? I am not a prophet nor am I a son of a prophet. But this I do know. The kingdom of God, which is made of the church of Jesus Christ, will not be destroyed. Did you hear what I said? What does Trey say? Hello, lights. The kingdom of God will be here in six years, in ten years, a thousand years if God tarries. Why? Because our king is alive and eternal. And so is his kingdom. And so as the nations rage, you and I can join in with the Apostle Paul who said, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. And we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why? Because Gabriel told us the kingdom would not end. Russia will end. The Ukraine will end. China will cease to be, and Iran will cease to be, and Canada will cease to be. And yes, the United States of America will cease to be. It's not going to be here. It's going to end. 
and that's okay. Because at the end of the day, my allegiance is to a greater kingdom. It 